Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Real Telephone Education Series. Um, tonight, we're very honored to have Dr. Thomas Lee, who is the Chief of, Chief of, uh, Chief of Ophthalmology at Children's Hospital Los Angeles um, on the Vision Center, actually at the Vision Center at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and naturally our, our uh, wonderful host, Dr. Bill Kikeshida, uh, who is the Consulting Director of Low Vision Training, and um, we are just pleased to have you both. The Dr. Bill the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series is an educational program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairments. Topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information to help us better understand pediatric eye conditions. And thank you both for joining us tonight. Oh, thank you very much, Sue, and thank you, Dr. Lee. Really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, my honor, my pleasure. Well, you know, one of the things that we very frequently see in all eye care practices is that we do see that many children suffer from low vision due to retinal conditions. Uh, they may be born premature and suffer from retinopathy of prematurity, or they may have other types of inherited retinal conditions, such as albinism or retinitis pigmentosa. But I, I know, Dr. Lee, that there are many, many advances in medicine and in ophthalmology. And I remember the last time that I had visited you, you were explaining to me how in the laboratory um, you folks were able to actually develop all 10 layers of the retina. So um, what are some of the latest advances in treatments of different types of retinal conditions that are very, very exciting at this time? Well, you know, I, I would say that when I was uh, beginning my training as a resident um, and then later on as a fellow, we're talking, um, gosh, almost 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, the options that we had for patients and particularly children who had these uh, very challenging diseases like retinitis pigmentosa, albinism. Um, we really didn't have much, we had nothing to offer other than testing. And from a therapeutic standpoint, uh, there were all these aspirations that we had, but nothing that was very clear cut and imminently on the uh, horizon. Fast forward 10, 15 years and in 2016, we are now facing a very different set of opportunities that are really, I think, going to be very promising. So I think when we talk about inherited retinal diseases as a starting point, um, there are two areas that I think are making significant progress. The first is gene therapy. Uh, gene therapy has been a concept that's been around for almost 30 years. Uh, unfortunately, really up until recently, has been surprisingly difficult to actually execute. And so, although the concept is simple, let's replace the defective gene with the correct gene. The actual implementation was very complicated and, and difficult. Um, there are currently, however, new trials that are ongoing that are no longer experimental. Uh, the one that most people are familiar with is Labor's congenital amaurosis. And the ability to treat that now with a virus that has been engineered to actually be therapeutic and be beneficial will now carry the corrective gene, uh, RPE65, into the retina and actually allow the retina to recover some vision. And so you've probably heard press on that. Uh, that is now becoming, uh, that will be more widely available when it becomes FDA approved later this year for labor's congenital amaurosis. Um, there is a company called Spark Therapeutics out of Philadelphia. They are going to be assigned to um, identify sites and train the doctors on how to do the gene therapy surgery to inject the virus into the eye. Um, and that's going to probably happen within the year. So from a, from a con conceptual standpoint, 
we're no longer talking theoretical gene therapy. We are actually talking real gene therapy. Uh, the downside is that it's restricted to a very small subset of diseases, labor's congenital amaurosis being one of them. But what's important is that if we can show that this is effective for patients with this genetic mutation, there's the opportunity for us to try it for other conditions like choroideremia, X-linked retinosthesis, other inherited retinal diseases may benefit from the essentially the, the, the methods that are being developed for labor's congenital amaurosis. So I think we're really excited. Um, I actually met with uh, one of the people from Spark Therapeutics. Uh, they're going to be considering uh, our hospital, Children's Hospital Los Angeles, as a West Coast site for the gene therapy delivery unit. So we're we're very excited about that opportunity. Wow! Congratulations, that's fantastic. Yeah. And um, from the standpoint of testing, uh, the ability to sequence the human genome and identify inherited mutations is becoming so affordable that it's estimated that we can now sequence the human genome, someone's entire DNA, for $1,000. Wow. To give you a perspective, when they first started the Human Genome Project, it was $100,000 to sequence one person's DNA. $100,000? No, $100 million. Sorry, $100 million. So it's really come down in price, uh, which means it's much more accessible. And for patients who have hereditary eye diseases, rather than waiting months and months and months, we might be able to give an answer much sooner. Um, our hospital has actually created a center for personalized medicine. So starting this year, we will be taking blood samples from our patients and sequencing them for inherited eye disease. So if a patient was thought to maybe have labor's congenital amaurosis, we could actually do the sequencing on site at the hospital and potentially give them an answer within a very short period of time. So I think the, the direction of the field is going where we can diagnose things much quicker, much more affordably. And with that information, we are starting to see opportunities where we can use that diagnosis to then design a therapy that would be specific for that patient. So I think gene therapy is, is really coming into its own. Um, there are certain disadvantages to gene therapy. Uh, primary is that it only works when the cell that needs the new gene is still alive. And in some retinal conditions, by the time you diagnose the disease, the damage that has occurred is already quite significant, and you're kind of behind the eight ball from that point forward, where you're no longer dealing with healthy retinal cells, but you're trying to do therapy, let's say gene therapy, on a cell that's in the process of dying already, in which case the corrective gene is going to be of little use because the cell itself is too sick to function. So the other side is doing stem cells. And uh, the idea is instead of doing gene therapy, you would do cellular therapy where you would replace the damaged cells that are too far gone to benefit from gene therapy and actually replace those cells with healthy new cells that do not have that damage. Um, there's a lot of excitement over it. Uh, Bill had mentioned a little bit of the work we're doing. We actually have a very advanced stem cell laboratory. Uh, we're probably one of four in the nation that can do this, where we can actually recreate the human retina in a dish and have it look very similar, if not identical, to what a human retina would look at that stage of development. Um, the problem or the challenge with stem cells is getting those new cells to integrate into the damaged retina in a way where those cells can talk to the rest of the retina and function. 
So that's something that is uh, a work in progress. There's evidence that it works and has some functionality. And so the joke in the field is uh, we have great stem cell techniques, and if you're a blind mouse, we can cure you. But if you're a blind human, that's something else. So right now, if you're a blind mouse, there's a great future in front of you. But right now, for humans, it's a different story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's something that will be we, we can surmount. It's going to take a little bit more work. Um, one thing I think that's actually very interesting, which we've selected as our area of focus, is... Although I think using stem cells to replace damaged retina is going to be very important, there may be another application of stem cells that could be even better, and that is what we call disease modeling, meaning that in our lab, we can now take a child's sample of blood, reprogram those blood cells, those white cells, to become what we call adult stem cells or pluripotent stem cells. Those stem cells then can then be brought forward and programmed to generate human retina. So let's say we have a child who comes from a family with a known hereditary retinal disease. And we've sequenced that child at birth and found out that that child actually has inherited that disease. Currently, what we would do is we would wait for that disease to have symptoms, cause damage, and then if there were the drugs that we could try, we would then try those drugs and have to wait 5, 10, 15 years for us to see whether the drug worked. So what we're proposing to do is to take stem cells, create the patient's retina in a dish, knowing that that retina in the dish is going to have the same mutation that the child has that will ultimately rob that child of their sight. And then take all those hundreds of retinas we made in the dish and start to treat them with different drugs and then sample them to see which of those retinas are actually surviving and functioning better and then find out what drug we gave that particular retina. So we will create the disease in the dish long before the disease actually occurs in the patient. And by doing that, we get a big head start on figuring out what drug might be useful or most useful so that we can then start the treatment before the disease actually has a chance to cause damage. So basically, prevent the crime before it happens. Um, I use sort of the analogy. I don't know if any of you have ever seen this movie called Minority Report with Tom Cruise. It's a science fiction show where they actually have the ability to see a crime before it happens so they can prevent it. And that's what we're trying to do in the lab is use this technology to model the patient's disease, create the disease before it occurs, get a 10 to 20 year head start, figure out during that time which drug works best on the patient's retina without requiring us to do a biopsy or surgery to get the tissue. And then start the treatment before the patient has any significant damage. And so we're calling it predictive medicine. And so for us, that's a big area that we're focusing a lot of our resources on. Uh, So we'll hopefully next year, I'll be able to give you even more of an update, but we're already starting it with the diseases for retinoblastoma and optic nerve hypoplasia. So we actually have retinas growing in the lab right now from patients where we've reprogrammed their blood cells to create miniature versions of their retinas to see whether or not this model accurately reflects the disease that's going to occur in the patient later on in life. So that's sort of some some cutting-edge wow. stuff. We haven't even published that yet, so you're the first to find out outside the lab. <laughs> wow, that is amazing. And uh, Dr. Lee, with that particular type of model, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but 
these particular stem cells that you are using are being generated from the patient's white blood cells. So Correct. you don't yeah. you don't have to actually find uh, unborn fetus to gain or no. use stem cells. Yes, and so that's a big uh, benefit because it it takes all the ethical issues surrounding embryonic stem cells off the table. And we found that these induced pluripotent stem cells that we can create and engineer from a patient's own white blood cells accurately behave as if this was a retinal stem cell. So we're very excited about that. Now, who is helping to finance these particular types of research projects? Is the United States government very supportive in this, or are you raising these particular funds through independent investors? Um, so the National Institutes of Health, NIH, are helping to fund some of this work. Um, we have philanthropic private donors who have been very excited about supporting this work as well. So it's really a combination of um, philanthropy, federal funding through grants um, that have all sort of come together. Uh, very motivated parents have helped out as well. So we really feel very fortunate. And, um, you know, I think when someone, when someone decides to support us using their own resources, I feel a personal obligation to make sure that their support and their funding goes to make a difference and that we really, um, it's, it's incumbent on us to become the best possible stewards of their resources to realize the aspirations of the donors and our patients. Yeah, that is fantastic. What about if some of our, our listeners or we know others who may be very interested, because I, I just think that this work is fascinating. Who would we donate this to? How would we designate it such that these funds would be earmarked for this program? Um, typically, the way donor-directed uh, support comes in is the that we, if someone was interested, they would contact the Vision Center, probably me, they would get me, and then we would listen to what the interest of the donor was, and then identify whether or not we could fulfill those aspirations of the donor, and if so, what that project would be. And then the donor would just write on their check that this is to go to, let's say, the stem cell program at, you know, at CHLA. Um, and so it's actually not that difficult. They just have to give us a call, call the Vision Center, and, um, you know, get in touch with me, and I'll sort of make sure that it's really important for me to honor donor intent, and I, I, especially when it's coming from an individual. So I really want to make sure that we do our part to explain to the individual what it is we can and cannot do, and would this meet the expectations of the donor? Um, because if we can't, if we can't meet the donor's expectations, then I would I would try and direct them to someone who could, if if possible. But I would I think a lot of what happens and the, the important part of that is is explaining to the donor what we could do with their funding and make sure that that is something that they would be proud of. Let's put it that way. Now, what about at the present time? Is Children's Hospital LA accepting clients or patients that are hoping to have a, a genetic testing? if they do know that yeah. the child does have a genetic eye disease? Um, we are about to go live this year. Um, it's a fairly uh, resource-intensive process, but we've been very fortunate to recruit some very bright minds in the field to help us get this started. Um, the uh, So the Center for Personalized Medicine has a scientific director, uh, Jacqueline Beagle, who came from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And the person who is actually overseeing a lot of the technical aspects of the sequencing and designing new, what we call sequencing panels, um, is uh, Zhao Wu. And he is uh, from 
Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary, fortunately. So he actually, in addition to being a phenomenal geneticist, uh, actually has background and built his reputation on inherited eye diseases at and developing the platform that Harvard is using right now. So we're hoping that by the end of the year, we can have some meaningful testing going on for our patients. Wow, that is absolutely fantastic. That's fantastic. Because I've had other patients who have actually had blood uh, drawn, and they they sent it to the National Eye Institute, and they said that they haven't heard results sometimes in over five years as to yeah, what, yeah. what is the genome. Yeah, it's it's a very long turnaround time. Um, we feel it's really important that as new technologies become available, such as gene therapy, um, having the ability to identify the, the problem at its earliest possible stage is going to be really critical in ensuring the best possible outcome. So the hospital actually has invested about... $30 million to create the Center for Personalized Medicine, which will obviously not be limited to just children with inherited eye diseases, but all types of inherited diseases. So we're very excited. Wow, that is fantastic. Um, I want to go ahead and, and ask any of our people who are in the audience, do any of you have any questions for uh, Dr. Lee? If you do, go ahead and unmute your phone by pressing star six and uh, ask ask your questions. Uh, Dr. Lee? Yes? Can you hear me okay? Uh-huh. Um, would any of this have any bearing or helping with uh, diseases of the cornea? Specifically, my child has Peter's anomaly. And I was wondering so, if any of the gene therapy would help him a little bit or... You know, like you were saying, we can we can cure a uh, a blind a blind mouse, mouse yeah. with the stem cells. Uh, maybe taking that a little further, could that help in uh, cor- growing a cornea and cornea modeling? So uh, the cornea. So to give you some background, the retina is sort of this unique part of the eye where it's so highly specialized that you can have a single mutation in a single gene that can wreak all this havoc. And so that's the bad news. The good news is if you fix that single gene and that single, you know, mutation, you can actually have a rapid turnaround, a 180-degree turnaround. When you look at other structures in the eye, such as the cornea, you may have a mutation that can start a whole cascade of events, of downstream events. And so let's say it it alters the formation of the cornea and the lens and the iris, let's say with Peter's anomaly. And what ends up being a single mutation triggers a cascade of events that go beyond that single mutation. Um, and so you can have scar tissue forming. The cornea itself can become hazy and have areas of opacity. Uh, So the gene therapy in that setting could try and correct whatever the original defect would be, but not necessarily help with all the downstream collateral effects. Now, having said that, let's say, for example, you wanted to do a corneal transplant, understanding that there are other issues that around Peter, such as glaucoma. But let's say you wanted to do a corneal transplant, which in an adult would actually be a fairly straightforward process. But in a child, is not. Because in a child, blood vessels can grow in that cornea that can then stimulate rejection of that cornea. So there's a lot of things that would be working against that cornea to actually take hold. This is what I'm about to forth is not something that I think is ready for prime time, but is something that's being looked at. So you can use gene therapy to replace a defective gene, but you can also use that same technology to confer protective benefit to tissue by introducing a gene that might protect that 
that tissue from having some of these side effects. So let's say there's a gene that can downregulate and prevent blood vessels from growing into the cornea. Well, you could engineer a virus to go and treat the cornea so that the cornea genetically becomes resistant to some of these blood vessels growing into it. So there may be applications for gene therapy that aren't obvious, but actually could have a big impact if you were clever on how you used it. So if your question is, is there gene therapy to treat a child for Peter syndrome where you reverse the mutation? The answer is probably not because of all the collateral damage that has happened. But if the question is, could I use gene therapy to take the corneal transplant that might have a 90% rejection rate and use gene therapy to make it genetically resistant to some of that, the answer is that's, that is something that people are, are working on. Very good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, does anybody else will take one last question for Dr. Lee? I had a, it, I had a question regarding the gene therapy for labors. When is that mm-hmm. being done on a child? At what age? So I think the youngest child in the trial was, I think, three or seven years old. And I'm, I'm waiting to hear back from Spark Therapeutics about what will be the youngest child. Um, children under a certain age, let's say 10, doing surgery in their eye is a little bit more complicated. And so we have to be a little bit more careful because the eye itself has different physical properties. So there may be a little bit of a reluctance, but I think the youngest I've heard of, I think, is three years old. And how much vision is being restored? It varies, and the duration may vary. Um, We have heard of patients who have recovered the ability to, you know, be semi-independent in terms of walking and going around. Um, It's... um, it still has a long way to go, okay. but it's definitely something that I think, you know, when you look at, at someone who has had no gene therapy, clearly there's a benefit. Okay, thank you. Well, thank you very, very much, Dr. Lee. Uh, this information is very, very helpful. And if anybody wants to either have a question with you or to schedule an appointment, uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you or your secretary? Um, the best way, and I guess there are two ways to do it. One is to email me, uh, which is T-H-L-E-E at C-H-L-A dot U-S-C dot E-D-U. Or to call my office, which is area code 323-361-4500. And that's maybe a little bit more reliable because I get about 150 emails each day, and that's not unheard of for some of them to slip through the cracks. So my secretary is much better if she'd be on track. Okay. What's that phone number again, then? 323-361? Yes, 4510. 361-4510. Okay, well, thank you very, very much for your time this evening, and uh, please extend our appreciation to your wife, too, because she's probably waiting for you to come over for dinner. (laughs) Well, well, I enjoyed talking with everyone. I'd be more than happy to uh, get online, uh, get on at a later date as well. Okay, well, have a good night. Okay, good night, Dr. Lee. Thank you so much. Good night. Well, thank you, everybody, for for being on the call like this. And that was really a, a wonderful surprise because we initially had Dr. Lee scheduled, but uh, his secretary had stated that he was not going to be available. So we came up with this other topic, and that's what we'll talk about now in the next 25 minutes or so. And we're going to be talking about how to prepare your child for a vision examination. Now, many of you could understand, for any child, the thought of going to any doctor probably is something that's not very enjoyable. For many children, they might remember that the doctors had poked them and they've taken blood, which hurt. Other times, they've stuck an instrument in their ear and they didn't like that. Or other times, the instrument went up their nose. So many of these particular types of tests that children have had in the past 
are not comfortable. Uh, they could be somewhat painful. And there was really nothing good about going to the doctors. So what we want to do is we first, number one, we want to make certain that you are scheduling an appointment with the appropriate eye doctor. Number one, again, make certain that you're scheduling the correct appointment with the correct type of eye doctor. What I mean by this is that there might be a time that you suspect that your child has reduced vision and you are specifically looking for a diagnosis of what is this particular type of problem. Or you might be noticing that your child has a crossed eye and you're looking for someone who might be able to treat it with surgery. Well, when you're looking for a doctor to perform these specific tasks, you want to make certain that you have a doctor who is really going to be able to do that. So, for example, if there is a family history in your family of retinal problems, you would want to schedule an appointment with someone such as Thomas Lee, who is a specialist in the retina. He has the equipment. He has the tools. He has the techniques to be able to make that type of diagnosis and perform the proper treatment. However, if the child has a very severely crossed eye, you probably would not be making an appointment with someone such as Dr. Lee, but you would make an appointment with someone who specializes in strabismus. And strabismus is the misalignment of the eye. In other cases, if your child has already been diagnosed with a visual condition and you're looking to find out what can this child see? What colors does this child see? How far can this child see? Does this child need glasses? Does this child see double vision? When you're looking for that type of information, then you want to be evaluated by a doctor who performs the functional vision assessment. So you want to do your research to, number one, schedule the appointment with the correct doctor. Number two, when you're on the phone with the specialist or his or her secretary, you want to then go ahead and ask that person what particular test will the doctor be performing. You should have a list in your mind of what you want that doctor to test for. And I recommend that you write that down on a tablet, or you could type it, or even type it into your cell phone, but definitely type that before you make that appointment. You can ask the questions, will the doctor measure how clearly my child could see? Will the doctor measure whether my child needs glasses? Will the doctor be able to measure how much color vision that my child has? Will the doctor measure how much side vision or peripheral vision that my child has? Will the doctor be able to determine whether my child needs sunglasses and what type of sunglasses? Will the doctor be able to tell me whether that my child needs low vision devices or computer technology so that he or she could perform better at school? So go ahead and write that list of questions that you may have so that when you do call the office to make that appointment, you could very quickly ask the secretary, will the doctor be able to do this and that? and this, and that, and this, and that. And the secretary may be able to tell you, no, that the doctor does not do that, and they may then refer you to another person. Number three, you want to ask the office whether or not the doctor will have to put eye drops in the eyes of the child. Now, it has been my experience that almost all ophthalmologists who are surgeons of the eyes they almost always put eye drops in the eyes. Now, these eye drops, they generally, they do not sting. But the fact of having something just dropped into your eye, it's very startling for the kids, and this is why the children cry. 
if the child is going to have his or her eyes dilated with eye drops, there are things that you can do to prepare your child for that. For example, you can go to the drugstore and just buy artificial tears. One brand that I really like is called Hypo Tears, H-Y-P-O-T-E-A-R-S. And what I'd recommend that you do just before maybe your child's going to go to sleep, let your child lay down and say, hey, I want you to feel this liquid. And I'm going to put one drop right on your finger and let the child feel it. And then you could go ahead and say, well, let me put one right on your cheek and they could feel that. And you can ask them, was it hot or is it cold? And they'll say it's cold. Does it hurt or does it tickle? And they may say that it tickles. And then what you could do is say, let's play this game. Just close your eyes and you could then put that single drop right in the corner of their eye, right near their nose. And they could feel it. And you could say, does that hurt? And they'll say no. And they could then open their eyes and the drop will then go into their eyes. This is a way that the child could become comfortable with the eye drop and it really reduces that type of startling. So by getting the child prepared so that they are comfortable with the eye drops, then that really reduces a lot of that type of anxiety. Now number four, you then want to inform the child as to what's going to happen during this examination. You're going to say, you know, tomorrow we're going to go see my friend Bill, and we're going to play all kinds of fun games at his office. At his office, he's got all of these different kinds of toys. He's got different types of equipment. You're going to be able to watch movies and videos. And if your child even has his or own favorite video, you might consider taking that video. You can ask the office manager if they have a DVD player or if it's a VCR system. But most of these offices will have a way that you could play these movies and then it will be projected on the screen. In other cases, some of the more modern offices will have it so that you could download these videos right onto a USB drive and you could take it right to the office, plug it in, and then your child could see his or her favorite movie. But overall, most of the doctors who do specialize in kids will have a lot of different types of movies. We also recommend that you bring an iPad. If your child has an iPad or a tablet computer, bring that and put the child's favorite movies on there. When you're bringing those particular toys, your child's going to simply think that they're there to play. So this is a really great, great way that the child thinks that they're going to go to this place and they're going to do all kinds of fun things. I also recommend that you really don't even mention that you're going to go see Dr. Lee. I would actually say that it's good to say, we're going to go to Thomas's and we're going to go play games at Thomas's. He's a really good friend of ours and we'll watch some videos. What kind of videos do you think we should watch? And let your child make that response. You could also then say, hey, when we go see Thomas, why don't we take some snacks? Let's make a nice picnic basket. Now, this is very important because for some offices, you may have to wait a long time, and that could be very difficult on everybody involved. So go ahead and make it into a fun thing by taking a little picnic basket. You could bring a couple of bottles of water or if your child likes juice. Bring some different types of snacks. Maybe you're going to chop up some vegetables, carrots and celery, or you might even have some other types of sweets that your child might like. But these are things that make it a lot more of a fun, eventful time because your child will say, hey, mom's bringing the ice chest and we have my iPad and my favorite toys. This is going to be something that's really, really fun. Now, when you then get into the office, you can immediately ask the secretary, how much time do we expect before we can go back? You know, it's often very helpful as you're scheduling your appointment to try to schedule the first appointment of the day. The reason for this is that many practices, they might double or triple 
or even quadruple book. I know some eye doctors that see as many as 100 patients a day. That's no exaggeration. So as you could imagine, these doctors will tend to get backed up as the day proceeds. So if you have the very first appointment, then there's a limited amount of backup that you'll experience. So if you have an appointment at 7.30 in the morning, then you might only have to wait a matter of 10 minutes or 15 minutes while the doctor might be seeing another patient. So that's a really very, very good suggestion. If the secretary tells you that it's going to be right away that you're going to be going back, then I would let the child go ahead and play with these different toys. Or you might let the child play with the iPad. Or you might bring out a book or other things that you may have. When the child first goes back into the room, you could say, oh, let's go back. Let's see what kinds of games and toys they have here. Allow the child to look around. Ask the doctor or the nurse or the technician if it's okay for the child to sit in your lap rather than to sit by his or herself. Allow the child to maybe even feel any of the instruments around. Ask the technician, oh, I told Jimmy about some of the lights you have here. Can he see one of the lights right now before the doctor comes in? This will be a way that the child thinks that these are all different types of toys. It's also a very, very good thing to encourage the doctor and the staff to know that after your child is finished with his examination, you have a treat for him. You've also brought these snacks, you brought the food, you brought the drinks, but there's going to be a real special treat. You know, after today's appointment, we're going to be going to the library. And so the child still feels that this is something that's really, really encouraging. When the doctor then comes in, you want to go ahead and just emphasize the fact that they're going to be playing all of these games. Jimmy, remember I told you last night the doctor has all of these games. Tom's got all of these games that we could play. Let's see what this one is. Oh, this one has all of these colored dots. Now, the color vision test is something that's very commonly performed, but the child could just know that this is a game where he has to find the shapes, a circle, a square, or a triangle. Oh, look at this next game. This next game, we get to put on 3D glasses. Look at these pictures. Wow, everything is popping out. Isn't that really cool? And the kids will really like looking at that. The next game might be to try to put a straw, a stick, into the straw. And when you put the stick into the straw, this is a game that the doctor is checking the child's eye-hand coordination. But the kids often could make this into a game. Let's say if you could get it in there three times. One, two, three. And the kids will think that this is something that's quite fun. So next, the doctor is going to ask maybe the child to look at some numbers or letters or shapes. And this is also another kind of a matching game. If the child already knows numbers or letters, we could say, let's see if you know what these are called. But if the child doesn't, the doctor will usually have a sample. And this wooden sample is something that the child could hold in his or her hand and they could match it. So if the doctor shows a circle on the eye chart, the child will touch the circle. If the doctor shows a triangle, the child will touch the triangle. And then the next part, the movies will come on and the doctors will pull out that really neat flashlight. Tell the child, look at the movie, tell us what's going on. And you, as a parent, could also just explain to the child, hey, look at there's Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse is running after Goofy. And this will help the child to keep his or her attention on the film. So overall, these are some of the more common types of tests that are performed in the functional vision assessment. Now what I recommend that you do when you first enter the room and the doctor enters, I would like for you to hand the doctor the list that you typed the day before. This would have all of the questions that you have for the doctor. And this makes it much easier for the doctor because 
as the doctor is doing the examination, the doctor could simply write down the answers to each of those questions. What is my child's diagnosis? Albinism. How far can my child see? Up to 10 feet. Does my child need glasses? Yes. Glasses are needed for full time. Does my child have problems seeing colors? No. Child has perfect color vision. What about my child's crossed eye? We will prescribe glasses to straighten it. The doctor will be able to answer those questions very quickly by simply writing. And as you can imagine, in some cases, the doctors who see up to 100 patients a day, they don't really have a whole lot of time to answer all of these questions. So you could prepare for your examination very, very well by writing these questions out. And finally, it will then probably be the time that the doctor is going to put drops in the eyes. And we could say, oh, let's play the game just like we did at home. You could then bring out your bottle of the hypo tears and play the same game. Okay, let's lay down. Let's put the water right here. Boom. You drop it in the corners of the eyes of the child. Blink, blink. Oh, great job. Okay, let's see. Oh, the doctor has one with a red cap. Let's put this one on. Boom, boom. And then you'll be able to put it in very easily. This is the way that we could really avoid most of the stress is that if we prepare the child so that the child is not anxious beforehand and the child is not experiencing something that they have never experienced before. So these are some of the things that we like parents to know beforehand. And at the Center for the Partially Sighted, we have a staff that calls the family before the examination and they prepare the family. We prepare the parents to know what to say and how to prepare that child. So at this time, what I'd like to do is I'd like to open up to any comments and suggestions that some of you have that work very, very well to prepare a child for the examination and to prepare the doctor to answer those questions that are so important. At the completion of the examination, you could simply ask the doctor, would it be possible that you put all of these answers in a report form? And the doctor would say, yes, that would be great. And the doctor could then keep that paper if the doctor needs it, or the secretary might make a photocopy, put it in the chart, and you take the other copy home. So can anybody share some other ideas that I may have left out? Does anybody have any questions? Okay, I, I guess that's it, or I don't know if I'm the only one on this call. Sue, are you still there? No, I'm still here. I'm still here, yeah. I was How just going to suggest... Sue? Do you have some suggestions? Well, I have, I have, well you kind of, you've covered it so well, Dr. Bill, but there's one thing I, I think it's kind of helpful to do sometimes, too, is um, after a visit, after a doctor visit, it's kind of nice to be able to, you know, talk to your child about the experience and maybe, you know, write down um, some of their, their child's comments about what the doctor visit was like. So it becomes kind of an experience story um, that helps the child to be able to um, have some ownership of what happened, their experiences, and helps them be kind of put some of their thoughts or maybe those lingering anxieties that are always um um, you know, address this because, you know, the things you talked about were beautiful examples of how to help a child um, prepare and be more comfortable. But just those lingering things about going to the doctor that we all tend to experience, but for a child to maybe write that an experience story and, and have those kinds of, of journaling almost that they can do with their family, you know, that becomes sort of their own story about going to the doctor. I think that's very, very good. And it could even be that mom and the child will go home or the dad and the child will go home and even mm -hmm. make a storybook out of it with pictures or something that yeah. they could draw. Mm -hmm. Does anybody yeah. else out there have other uh, suggestions that they'd like to share? Dr. Bill, it's Nancy. Hi, Nancy. Thank you. Hi. I, I just have to say I was very moved by how you just made it so real for these kids to <laughs> do something that can be so challenging and your love of what you do and your gift really just 
permeate all of these lectures. Oh, thank you very much for saying that. And I have to tell you, you know, this isn't something where I'm special or I'm great or I can't even say that it's because I read a book or attended a lecture. But I've been examining, in part, children uh, for the first 18 years I was doing the examination. In the last 12 years, I've been sitting in the examination room, and, and we learn through experiences, you know, Parents will often tell us what they told their child or what they did, and uh, I don't come up with these ideas. I steal them from the parents. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> They're very modest, Dr. Yes, parents, <laughs> parents, parents are our very best teacher. They are. Absolutely. Well said, Nancy. I, does anybody else have any other comments, questions, or suggestions? Okay. Well, I thank you all very much uh, for your time, and we will be recording this. Uh, thank you to Joe Yurka from Airs LA. It will be up on the Braille Institute webpage at www.brailleinstitute.org, and it will also be up at Airs LA at www.airsla.org. Now, with Airs LA. We also have two new applications. Uh, one would be for your Android phone. The other is for your iPhone. So you can listen to all of these podcasts on your cell phone, which makes it very, very exciting. And, Sue, you want to let everybody know that uh, that we're going to be taking a little bit of summer vacation and uh, okay. what we have in store for next fall. Well, we will be working on that, Dr. Bill. <laughs> So uh, we will be taking a break for July and August, and then uh, we will be getting back in touch to our list uh, with our list on topics that will be, um, you know, our, our, our next our next uh, season's topics. And if anybody has any suggestions or ideas for what they'd like for topics, please feel free to to email me at s s t r a s s and frank a c i at braille institute.org, and we'd love to hear from you. Well, that sounds great. I hope everybody has some good ideas, and then uh, we'll have a lot of work <laughs> to prepare for these programs, right? <laughs> <I know. laughs> You're right. You're right. Well, we, as always, Dr. Bill, we, we deeply appreciate everything. You've, you know, all we've learned from you this, this past year, and uh, we look forward to hearing more and learning more from you. And okay. we also appreciate Ayers and, and Joe and Dick Burden. Joe, Jerka and Dick Burden for recording these, pro these programs for us. Thank you yes. Great yes, yes. Thank you very much. So, uh, again, thank you very much for everybody listening this year, and we hope to, again, see you again this September. Good night, everybody. Good night, and happy summer.